The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time tonight. Uh, Jude is right at the door now. If you have any questions, feel free to check in with me at the end or Jude about the center, how it works. Once a month, usually at the end of the month, but I forgot last week, I just mentioned how the center works, and uh, most of you know this, but uh, since we began in 1993, we haven't charged, we don't talk about money very much, we don't have suggested donations, and yet somehow the community purchased this building and we bought a retreat, it's really a farm, out in western Wisconsin that we're developing, and we have four paid staff, and we support our teachers that are teaching here. But all, is, all of this is done in a really natural and, I think, beautiful way. And we use that word, you might hear it here, <clears throat> dana, D-A-N-A. It's the Pali word, Pali being a language spoken around the time of the Buddha, for the word generosity. But it's not a great translation for the word dana, but it's kind of right. But more specifically, it's about the circle of giving and receiving, and the kind of freedom we can feel when we're in that place of you know, not being in a business relationship with everybody in our life, with everything in our life, where <clears throat> our way of showing up in relationships, in terms of your relationship to common ground, or any, really any place in your life, there's a sense of freely receiving whatever comes your way, Sometimes it's not very pleasant, as we know, and freely giving what you have to give in those moments. Maybe your wisdom, maybe your patience, maybe you show up and speak truth to power. But we're always willing to engage, show up, offer what we have to offer in the moments of our life. And, no choice about this, we have to learn how to receive whatever's showing up. Like, I got a cold, right? So I can like, make that a problem, or I can practice receiving that freely. So at the center, this is you know, just a central teaching in this lineage coming down from the Buddha. But in terms of the operation of a you know, medium-sized, small to medium-sized nonprofit that Common Ground is, you know, we decided to base the center on this, on this really beautiful principle, which means that as a center, as a community, we offer everything freely. We practice giving everything away with no strings attached. And to let it be a cause for joy for all the people who are involved in making this place possible. And there are hundreds of people involved in cleaning and assisting, volunteering, besides the paid staff and the teachers. And so... That's a free gift, and then our job, if you're here for a program, is to receive it as a free gift, and that's surprisingly challenging, to just really take it as a free gift, no strings attached. It's not like a clever fundraising technique. (laughs) It's really an offering from the community that has made it possible for the programs to be offered freely. So we, we practice letting it in and letting it touch our hearts. Well, that's nice. It's not that common ground is the least expensive Buddhist meditation center in town, right? It's like the cost structure here, the expenses are the same as any other sort of similar organization. But we want to practice in this way. And so if and when you feel like you want to give, really check so that you're not doing it because you feel guilty, because that means you haven't received it as a free gift. So you shouldn't be giving because you feel guilty. You should be giving because it makes you happy to give or volunteer your time or whatever you do. So uh, keep that in mind. There is a sheet out by the donation bowl with some information, and of course more information on the website. Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher here, used to be the chair of the board of directors for many years, but she's also a bookkeeper. She works Tuesdays. She can give you any information you need about that. And then one thing to keep in mind is when we have visiting teachers, then the support that they get is comes the night that the don is collected, the donations are collected. So you can go online, you know, and you can designate it for a particular teacher. For me, my support comes once a year. The board looks at the money that's come in, 
and kind of assign some support for the next 12 months. But for other teachers at the center, their support comes each time that they're teaching what's in the donation bowl or if it's online, what's been designated to them. And that's the, the sort of one technical piece of information you need to understand in terms of how the center runs. And if you have questions, you can see Jude or me at the end or, like I said, contact Gail on Tuesday uh, in the office. So we're moving on. <clears throat> Some of you have been reading along in Ajahn Sushito's book. Many of you probably aren't, but we're close to the end. You still can get a copy. It's freely available online, and we have a link to it up on our blog on the website. You can find that link where you can download a copy of this book for free if you'd like. And the next chapter we're going to be looking at is the aggregates, and that's pages 219 to 244 for those who are reading along. But before I launch into talking about this particular way the Buddha um, outlined or mapped out the body-mind, the sort of realm of our experience, I just thought it would be good. We haven't had a practice check-in in a while. So there may be enough questions tonight just about how we practice sitting practice, what's coming up for you in sitting practice, what's confusing about the instructions, or just even more generally, you know, the practice, what the Buddha taught. So let's see if there's some questions tonight. We can hear from people. And if not, I'll talk about the aggregates. So any questions about your practice you'd like to bring up? And please don't be shy. It's actually quite useful for, he, for people to hear other people describe their practice or describe their questions. So if you have any, this is a good time to bring them up. Anything come to mind? When you think through what happened in your sit, any places in your practice not clear? Any experiences that are challenging? Yeah, please, you want to pass? I'll go ahead first, you can, and then we'll go over here. Okay, so I can't actually observe my breath. I can, if I start, if I think about my breath, I start controlling it. I start using my voluntary muscles in my chest, wherever, or my diaphragm to move my, you know, move air in and out. And if I try to just uh, pay attention to my breath, either nothing happens or some part of my brain says, okay, just take over. So I, I don't know if other people really can do this and... I'm one of the only ones. You're the only one. (laughs) (laughs) And but you know, interestingly, Kenneth, that's actually an insight to see that when we bring the attention to some natural phenomenon like breathing in and breathing out, it's interesting and important to observe how the mind can't just observe in that neutral way, because you're basically having insight, you may not realize it, but you're having insight into one of the underlying truths, what we call dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature. So how the mind, something built deeply into the habit of the mind and how it relates to natural phenomena is in this controlling way, right? And that that's stressful. We do it all day long, but we don't notice it's stressful. But when we pay attention to it, we see this phenomenon. It isn't just about how the mind relates to the breath. It's how our mind relates to our partners. It's also controlling our kids, our cat, our body. We're controlling around our thoughts. So, first of all, you don't have to use the breath as your meditation anchor. But don't presume that other phenomena, your mind's not going to do the same thing, it's doing in relationship to the breath. It may, it may not. Maybe stronger, maybe weaker. So a couple things you can do in that situation, because like I suggested, this is probably pretty common for a lot of us, right? Myself included. So one thing is that one of the reasons I bring the <coughs> awareness, <coughs> excuse me, awareness of the in and out breath with the experience of the whole body is that we can... Uh, sort of shift around in terms of what we're paying attention to to support 
a greater sense of ease in the mind. So, for example, as you're breathing in, instead of tuning into the breath so much, get more interested in the whole body. Because when, you have, when you're sort of receiving, knowing the sensations of the whole body, the mind will be a little bit less controlling with the actual breathing process, right? So that's one little trick. Then another thing is, it's okay if the breath feels controlling. It's not that the, the instruction is, don't let your breath feel controlled. The instruction is, don't intentionally try to make your breath different than the way it is. So if the breath is controlled, breathing in, aware of the breath, aware of the sensations, aware of the quality of the breath, controlled, you know, feel the whole body. So you're not controlling the body, or the breath rather, you're noticing it feels controlled. Right? It's just the quality of the breath, like it's short, or it's long, it's rough, it's controlled. It's just an attribute to the breath you're feeling as it's coming in, to the breath you're feeling as it's going out. The problem isn't that it feels controlled. The problem is you're not aware of it, but that you don't like that it feels controlled and that you want to change it. That's the problem. Not that it feels the way that it feels, tight, controlled, or however you might describe it, but that somehow the mind's concluded that that's not right. But maybe it's fine that it feels the way that it feels. So in that, in light of that, you could breathing in, breath is like this, breath feels controlled. Can that be okay? Yeah, that could be okay. Breathing out, breath feels controlled. Can that be okay? Yeah, that could be okay. So can you be at ease with the breath feeling controlled is an interesting question. Can it be okay? It's not pleasant, right? But there's a lot of things in life that aren't pleasant that we can be present with, we can be intimate with. So this is what you work with. So instead of just abandoning the breath as your primary meditation object or with your body, your primary meditation object, you might just see if it's okay that the breath feels the way that it is. And when the controlling gets really strong, then really see that controlling, you're not doing it intentionally because, you know, if you were intentionally doing it, you could intentionally stop doing it. But can you intentionally stop doing it? Obviously, no, because you would have, right? If you could stop that, you know, (laughs) stop controlling the breath. Well, it can't. It's just a habit. And that habit isn't personal. It's not your habit, even though, you know, we say it that way with language. But it's just something in the mind that has momentum, to breathe that way. And so we have to allow nature, in this case, the nature of the breathing process, to express itself. We don't need to judge it. We have to allow it to be the way that it is. And just so happens, that allows everything to change. Not being upset with the breath feeling controlled is what eventually allows the all the natural processes, processes of the body to move in a more easeful way, graceful way. Not the not liking of the controlled breath. Does that make sense? Yeah, to follow up <laughs> just a little bit, I, maybe coming from you know the tradition I came from and where most of it came from, so... I might think of that as forgiving my breath or forgiving my mind for doing that. Does that make yeah. sense? Understanding that the breath can't be other than the way it is right now. And it's a deep lesson about the unsatisfactory nature of ordinary natural processes like the breath and also how impersonal they are, that you're not in control. There is nobody in control. I mean, I know we can kind of control the breath, But there's something really um, important to see how things are kind of happening on their own and how we're breathing in a way is a function so much more of the past, like what's been set in motion in the past. So we're just letting the past express itself as what's happening in the present moment. And we're learning to be peaceful 
have a peaceful relationship with what's showing up in the present moment. If you want peace, if you really want peace in your life, then we have to practice being peaceful with what's showing up. If you want to be tight, then practice controlling with whatever's showing up in your life, right? Because that will make you tight. Yeah. Thanks, Kenneth. Want to pass the mic over here? And by the way, we do record on Sunday nights, and all of our talks at the center get put up on the website, so if you ever want to listen to anything. Um, My name is Andrea. I'm kind of forgetting my original question, but I do have one... Kind of more a, a basic one, I guess. I hear about, you know, you, you say a lot of a meditation object, and I've thought before, or I've heard mention of having like an actual physical object, maybe like a rock or beads or something like that, but recently I tried looking more into that, and I, so I'm just curious if that does have a place in actual formal meditation, like having an object that, you know, you're just trying to like anchor yourself physically, or if that's even a thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, well, these days, well, first of all, there have been contemplative practices in many, many different traditions through human history. And uh, this, even before the time of the Buddha, ways of gathering the energy of the mind was common in India and probably a lot of other places. And so in all of that history, there are all kinds of little gimmicks and tricks and meditation objects that have been used, visualizations, mantras, prayer, ritual, you know, beads that go with mantra or prayer. Um, uh, So there's many different ways. In this tradition, we tend to use natural phenomena, not constructed phenomena, right? So that means we use hearing. That's a common meditation object. Not a particular sound, but just the sort of ocean of sound that's arising moment by moment by moment and resting in the experience of hearing. In the same way, we use the whole body awareness. You can do that with the whole sound awareness, not particular sounds, but all sounds moving together. Right? Whole body awareness is a very common one. Body scan, systematically moving the attention part by part through the body over and over again is common. The breath, of course, is a common and then there are particular themes like loving kindness or compassion. Um, and there are wisdom themes that also we use as meditation objects. So it isn't just one thing. But we generally try not to use conceptual objects for practice, um, which is different than some other sort of meditative traditions. Yeah. So if you're new to practice, it's good just to follow instructions. It doesn't mean you have to give up the other practices you've done in your life. It just means that if you want to benefit from studying here at the center, it's good just to sort of give the instructions you're getting a try and see if they'll be useful in your life. Yeah, and ask questions, clarify, make sure you really get what's being asked, and then see what the value is. One of the phrases that, one of the more famous phrases from the Buddha is this, Ehipasiko, which usually gets translated as something like, check it out. Right? So he taught, and then he, would, he, he wasn't like saying other people are wrong or I'm right. He, he would say, you should check this out. And if you find it useful, then you should become sincerely devoted to it. Not because I said it, because you checked it out and you found that it actually helps. Then you should really, you know, build your life around the practice so it becomes part of your life. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other questions that people have? My name is Isabel. Um, My question is about defilements. I've um, kind of adjusted my life. I get up really early so that I can meditate in the morning because that's the quiet time at my house. And then, you know, the the sun rises, the lights come on, and I get involved in um, relationship affairs, you know, all the things you have to do to just live. But what I really want to do is read a book for a couple of hours and do the crossword puzzle. <laughs> and then by the end of the day, I feel like I have wasted, I've wasted time. And I think, 
should I just forget the puzzle and the science fiction? Can I just eliminate those things from my life? Because they really seem like defilements to me that I'm so fascinated by these uh, luxuries. Yeah. And it's part of a bigger uh, insight that slowly, for most of us, slowly dawns in the mind. And it really has to do, and you know, especially in the way that Isabel framed it, it's not the obvious defilements of, you know, cheating on people or, you know, consuming things that are directly harmful to us or cause harm to other people. But it's just these kind of really ordinary choices that aren't obviously harmful, but it means we're not doing what we would otherwise do, right? And what slowly can dawn on the mind is what this life is really, what this life can actually be used for. And the easiest thing in the world is to miss this and to use our life just to get by and just to do the best we can to line up pleasant experiences and to avoid the unpleasant ones. That's the basic approach we have to life. <clears throat> and it's not necessarily bad, but it's, you know, just in terms of imagination, it's a pretty limited view of life to just do the best you can to have nice experience and to avoid unpleasant experience and then die. So, the more we reflect deeply about this predicament we're in as human beings and the more that we have our own experience of the mind um, opening in a way where it it transcends a lot of the fear, a lot of the mind's dependence on things like wholesome, you know, relatively wholesome things like reading a book you know, or watching TV, or playing, doing a crossword puzzle, or playing with a cat or dog, or and again, it's not that those things are bad. And ultimately, doing those things can be practice. But first, we need to know what practice is, right? The practice of non-attachment, the practice of not clinging. So, until you can do your crossword puzzle or read your mystery novel, is that what you said, mystery novel? Science fiction, yeah, sorry. (laughs) We all have our addictions, myself included. You know, our go-to places, basically, to fill up space, right? Whatever it might be, news junkie, or maybe you build model airplanes, or you knit, or whatever it is. And again, some of these, most of these even, can be quite harmless, except they fill up space. And they're a way of avoiding what might actually lead to a sort of a more um, a more full release of the heart, allowing for greater compassionate engagement, wise engagement with our life, a f- fulfilling engagement with our life. Because we're just we're in that mode of just trying to get by, and filling the space up. So it's really interesting to look at, like when we are, especially in those first moments, we're reaching for the crossword, we're reaching for the computer to read some news or for food in the fridge. It's really useful to have some moments of mindfulness right then and there to notice the quality of greed in the mind or fear or anxiety. Like, what is the mind doing and is it working? So it's not about being a scold or judging ourselves. It's just being interested. For a long time, when I earlier in my practice, you know, I would I'd have to tell myself, "Listen, we're in this together. We just want to be happy." So when I'm, you know, like when I'm sort of doing the Buddhist thing, you know, it's not like I'm doing it to be a scold or a, a neurotic parent who's judging and controlling. I just, I'm trying to find, you know, as I navigate my life and make the choices that I make, going to the internet and, or not, or reading the science fiction or not, or eating something or not, when I bring in my practice, you know, instead of it being like, oh, no, not that, <laughs> it's like, 
what it what it's really doing is just trying to clarify. Like, remember, we're just trying to be happy, but I don't want to be happy in a superficial way. I want to be happy in a deep way, in a resonant way. So as I feel the push and pull to do this, to not do that, I want to bring that depth to these ordinary choices that we make all day long navigating our life, which means I want to be awake. I want to be have that stability of mind, that even, resonant, clear presence, kind presence, so that I'm aware of what kind of mind is being set in motion when I spend an hour doing this. What kind of mind, what kind of heart is getting reinforced, getting set in motion? What kind of person am I going to be doing what I'm doing, relating how I'm relating right now? Because that really wakes us up. Like, oh, that's not who I want to be. You know, when I see myself being that hungry ghost, as an image in the Buddhist tradition of a being with a huge appetite, but they have a mouth the size of a pinhole, right? So they can never appease their appetite. Always hungry, but can never consume enough to quench the appetite. So when I go to the fridge, you know, if I can have just a moment of awareness, it's like, so what I'm doing right now is I'm watering this tendency to be a hungry ghost. And so I'll be good at it down the road. Is that what I want? Is that a cause for happiness? No, it's not a cause for happiness. If we actually look, we go, oh, yeah, no, that's not what I want to cultivate. I don't want to set that emotion. So this is the thing. We may it, It's a little bit uh, overwhelming to bring this more continuous awareness into our lives because we start to see what we don't want to see, but we sort of do want to see it. We need to see it. It's actually how we become a happier, wiser, kinder human being. But it means we're putting everything on the table, right? So it's it's really about self-honesty. Like, honey, I don't want to live, you know, in a lie. I want to be honest, like we would in an intimate relationship. So let's put things on the table. Let's be honest with each other, right? So that we can build something that's real and satisfying. So my tendency is to say, okay, just stop doing these things that you enjoy so much, these guilty pleasures. Just kick them out the door. Yeah, so does that work? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. But usually there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's a little bit like in a frictionless world. If you push, right, you can't push without forcing your, you know, pushing yourself away too. There... I was a teacher, a school teacher, elementary school teacher in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area back in the 80s and uh, mid-80s. And uh, <clears throat> there was this place, maybe some of you have been there, the Exploratorium. There's, now they're all over the country. But back then it was like the first one. And uh, they had something like that. I forget how they, they did it exactly, but you'd stand and you'd try to sort of move, but you couldn't move because any effort created an equal and opposite force, right? And so it's a little bit like being a scold with her own mind. There's an equal and opposite force. But what does help in those moments when we see ourselves doing something and we're suspicious whether it's actually helpful, a cause for happiness, is to understand it deeply, like to feel into it. So what we're basically doing is we're willing to feel the karmic effect of whatever the mind's up to. And we're, we're on purpose receiving the karma of it right then and there. So we're learning, like we're completing the circle. We're acting out, let's say we're acting out some greed, but there's enough wisdom, enough stability of a mind, so we're interested, not judging, just interested, because we care about this life. So the interest to understand is arising out of compassion, not judgment, not hate. I care, so I'm going to pay attention. Ah, this is hurting. This is making the heart tight. So that's the karmic fruit of whatever I'm up to right now. The wanting something in the fridge or wanting something provocative in the news or you know whatever 
sort of relatively harmless thing we might be up to, sort of probing our partner in a way that's a little aggressive or, you know, whatever it might be. And we feel into it and we feel what's getting set in motion right then and there. And two things happen. Because the circle's completed, we feel what's being set in motion. Letting go happens. We never ultimately let go. The person, you, me, we don't let go. It's true that letting go happens. It's true that change happens. But it's not because you or I do it. It happens because there's an understanding, and understanding causes change to happen. So this is the real innovation, spiritual innovation, the Buddha made clear, having understood his own mind pretty well, which is trying to control things is at the root of the problem. Because the view in the mind when we're trying to control things is there's a me who has a life, so therefore I should be in charge and make it work. It's exactly that attitude that creates all the stress, all the war and oppression. So what the Buddha found works is putting all our eggs in the basket of understanding. So that's why we stabilize the attention. That's why we care about calm, calming the mind, stabilizing continuity of awareness, is because then that mind, that stable mind, can understand what's happening. And good choices come from understanding, not from trying to control your life. Tension comes from trying to control your life. Good choices that lead to happiness come from having the stability of awareness that can, in a sense, feel into the moment, see into the moment, understand all of the roots, like the conditional roots, like how I got here, what I'm setting in motion. Right? So we're basically, that stability of awareness helps us to read karma, what's getting set in motion. And that understanding changes how we make choices, what we do, what we don't do, without you or I, the ego, doing. The letting go, the different choice happens naturally. Understanding changes everything. So the whole path isn't about doing the right thing. It's about seeing things clearly in depth, and so skillful action happens. Yeah. Thank you. That was helpful. I think Eric had his hand up next, and then Lynn, you can be after Eric. Hello. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about mindfulness within the context of competition. Um, As I've gotten older, excuse me, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that I'm a pretty competitive person and like when I play games play sports for example I really like to win that feels good to me and I play a lot of basketball and um, I find that it's really hard for me to be both aggressive and in control on the one hand I find that the fiery energy and the aggressiveness and you know, getting my emotions involved, that really helps me to succeed in the conventional sense. But then on the other hand, it also can lead to tiffs, arguments with teammates or opponents. And um, that doesn't feel very good. And when I make a strong set, an intention to really keep my emotions in check, when I'm playing a game, for instance, um, I find that <clears throat> more often than not, I end up losing. <laughs> and then I don't, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, oh, okay, I kept my emotions in check. Like, yeah, I, that was that was good, you know, good job. But like, I just lost. That doesn't feel very good. Um, so on the one hand, I really want to win. That That's fun to me. But I also want to remain in control, and I guess of my emotions, that is. And I'm, <clears throat> I find that this comes up uh, in my work, too. I, I run a business, and um, 
again, I feel like that that fiery energy, that competitiveness is sort of what's allowed me to succeed on the one hand, but it also can, can lead to, uh, divides. So I'm just wondering if, if you might, uh, have something to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we could ask the question what, what it means to succeed. Like when you say succeed, it means like winning the basketball game or, getting the contract, earning more money. But, you know, what is that actually? I mean, there, there is something about surviving. But a lot of uh, what we take as success, like this is the thing that we're all probably in the middle of, like am I a spiritual being? Am I interested in freedom? Or am I a beast interested in having a lot of nuts in my little den, right? <laughs> or a lot of offspring, or a lot of, you know, the things that beasts want, right? And as human beings, we actually get a choice. What we, what we think is a worthy aspiration for a human life. Big house, big car, lots of friends, lots of power, or whatever, you know. Or a heart that's released. So you have to kind of ask what, what you're interested in. And, it's, and if you're interested in, let's say, just to make it provocative, let's say you're interested in power and you're honest enough to say that in front of the group, then it'd probably be good to pursue that, but to bring in mindfulness don't assume that that choice to pursue power or wealth or being loved, don't assume that it was right. It's just that that's my inclination, so I'm going to check it out. Does it? But check it out. Follow it with awareness and see whether that is satisfying, that per- the, the pursuit of that is satisfying, like the pursuit of winning. Like what does that feel like to win? There's a great um, article in a book that I read a while back by um, Bill Russell. Uh, some of you might not know, but when I was a kid, he was a great basketball star. I think for the Celtics, right? Anybody know? Yeah. Celtics? But somebody wrote a book. I forget even now what the book was about. But they had a chapter where Bill Russell wrote, and uh, it was just about these places he'd get in the game where he didn't care about who was winning or losing, but he played his best ball at that time. And there was so much joy, right? And he just, it was like that kind of, that place we get to sometimes where things are effortless and natural and really buoyant and light. And, you know, artists sometimes know this place, athletes sometimes know this place, parents sometimes know this place, where... Greed, anger, and delusion aren't the driving forces in the personality for periods of time. And then the mind realizes the mind where greed, anger, and delusion aren't the driving forces in the mind. And there's so much space, so much freedom, something that's so right and whole in those moments. And his description of it is just like so beautiful and so in line with what we understand when we do this practice. And I think really great, the greatest artists and um, athletes and activists and they're people who they're operating out of love or some space of the mind that has at least temporary freedom from greed, fear, aversion, distraction or delusion, which is just, that's what distraction is. Because that's then those minds, they're touching freedom. So I would, like in terms of your business and in terms of playing basketball, if you could just prompt yourself right there at the beginning in the moments before you start to play, like, I'm here not to win. I'm here to be free in playing basketball. I'm here to do my business, to sort of be the manager of this business as an expression of freedom. So that the activity of running the business is beautiful and liberating 
and light and everything beautiful. I mean, why not have that be our aspiration when we run a business, when we raise kids, when we play whatever? And that's what I meant in response to Isabel's comment. Like, eventually, doing the crossword puzzle can be the practice of freedom. So we're doing it not to be tight, not to avoid what we don't want to do, but to be free, to be loving in the activity of doing the crossword puzzle or in the activity of playing basketball. But it's not so easy to go directly there. But when we're going to read the newspaper or do the puzzle or play a game of basketball, go ahead and practice being free even when it's still difficult to do that. And just keep reinserting that intention all the way through the game. Wait a minute, I'm not here. I'm here to be happy. Because isn't that ultimately, you think winning will make you happy. Now you're just sort of stepping back. Winning may or may not make me happy. But what I'm interested in doing is being happy. And Mark said, or the Buddha said, <laughs> and it seems, lo- you know, it seems like maybe it's true, that if you want to be happy, you have to practice being happy now. It's not like being tight now will make me happy later. That's what we think, like in terms of running our business. Being neurotic now will lead to happiness. No, it leads to being a neurotic businessman later. right? Or having, like you said, tiffs with your friends. And you may be great, you may win a lot, but no one wants to play with you. <laughs> and you don't even want to play with you. You know, it's like... I don't want to feel what I feel when I play. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Lynn, did you have a thought that you want to share? Um, I, my thought was about equanimity. You've been talking about that the la- recently, and um, it's been really helpful to me. So I guess my comment or question isn't so much on the when I'm sitting although it's there too, um, I'm finding in my day-to-day life, it's really helpful for me to ask myself if I really need this to be different and why. I really appreciated that you kind of broke it down to that. That I can wrap my head around and it's like, so I'm in, uh, so I'm dealing with difficulties and, um, A lot of energy goes into wanting things to be different and and makes things worse. So I, I'm starting, I am, I in my day-to-day life, I'm, what happens when equanimity is present is my awareness seems to um, broaden a bit. Instead of only being focused on if there's a problem, or discomfort, or I'm suffering in some way. Um, if I bring to mind that I could be equanimous here, now what's what you know? I there's room for um, gratitude for things that aren't wrong. Yeah. You know, and that's like, a huge move. Just that bigger container of. Because any one of us in this room right now, we could put our attention in the middle of one of our personal problems, and then we would become the person who has a personal problem. And the world will look a very particular way if we embed the mind in that problem. But there's another move we can always do, and this is what I hear Lynn talking about, which is stepping out of that view, broader, wider, deeper view, just more space. It's like it's literally like we step back and we realize, yeah, I can be embedded in that particular problem and then things look a particular way or I can step back. So like right now with this practice, we can, in a sense, step back, not the mind not embedded in, oh, yeah, tomorrow's Monday and or, oh, yeah, I forgot to do. But now we're sort of we're not denying anything. Everything's in play. Everything's here. Is this okay? Is this moment okay? You know, as we feel into the moment, notice 
the quality of the mind, the attitude or whatever, qualities of the body. Can this be okay, this moment? And even, like even broader, wider, like, and the world is the way it is right now, very imperfect. And then there's the moon and the other planets and, I mean, the whole galaxy and then the great mystery of whatever this is and how little we really understand and all that's emotion that we're vulnerable to, can that be okay? Like, is it safe to relax? Is it safe to be okay with the mystery? And when you really ask sincerely, it, the answer is obvious, yeah, in this moment. Where it becomes intolerable is when we embed the mind in a particular story or problem and then it's not okay but when we back out and open up if the, if the obvious answer is like not that nature is sort of doing the right thing or all the causes and conditions are somehow yeah it's all going to work out I mean th- that's also really a kind of delusion wishful thinking the truth is we don't know how it's going to work out right we don't know how it's going to work out. Yeah. Lewis, you want to talk? I think uh, what's going around right now it, and goes around a lot with me is that I'm aware of having some really strong conditioning about being this particular I, this identity, and how invested I can be in wanting or avoiding, uh, being angry or sad. And it seems like the challenge is somehow figuring out how to function in this uh, so-called rational world, but also have a sense of contentment or what I would call happiness with kind of disappearing into what? Into the flow of this. It's hard to find language for it. But we have to follow the truth wherever it leads, even if it doesn't make sense in, what did you call it, the rational world? You know, and when you look at saints and wise people and, you know, the gems of humanity through the ages... They didn't try to fit in. They just gave up on that project. (laughs) And they they decided to be real instead, right? And and they weren't afraid of being light and loving and, you know, speaking truth when that felt like the right thing to do. They just did what felt right in the moment. And it was really coming from this inner space, this inner understanding, instead of trying to fit in to what's rational, what makes sense. Well, in our mainstream culture, we have all this conditioning around being identified with not only a location, but also our team. And we begin to process reality in terms of, I'm one of them, and I have to compete against all the others to end up on some place called top. Yeah, yeah. And this happens whether you're in some sort of power, you know, corporate structure or not. We're all playing this game within families, within groups of friends, within communities. Yeah, and where does that lead us? Leave us tight. Exhausted. Yeah, and exhausted. Yeah. Other thoughts? Maybe this side of the room. We'll come over to these two folks over here. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, we have time for maybe one or two more comments. Hi. Um, to kind of go off of your talking about hungry ghost, um, momentum of the mind, um, not in sitting, but in daily life, how does one work with grasping mind and new relationships, particularly like new partner relationships? Yeah. Well, the first and foremost thing is to notice how much suffering there is in the grasping. 
And don't think that's a small thing. And be really honest. Like, like, and you can put some language to it every moment that you notice. Oh, honey, this hurts. This is tight. You know, it's not about condemning or judging yourself. You're just being honest that the, when you recognize the mind's dependence on the new relationship working out or this hope that it will be some kind of way, then just honestly acknowledge, oh, this hurts. This hurts. And I care about that. And because you can't really be intimate, you can't really connect with the reality of the relationship unless you're willing to touch and feel what's there in the relationship. If you can see that, if you can feel that honestly, then you might naturally start noticing how you relate differently to the relationship. You might hold it more lightly because it hurts when you don't hold it lightly. The equanimity will come in precisely because you see the, the mind sees how dysfunctional it is to be dependent on something you, you can't control. Right? To build ground, to try to build a life on ground that is not stable. Relationships, by the way, are not stable. <laughs> Even the very best relationships aren't stable. They're dynamic things. Yeah. So why are we looking for relationships for stable happiness? Where does stable happiness come from? Understanding. It's not dependent on another person. Stable happiness comes from the understanding when the heart is willing to include everything. Then understanding develops. Whether we're in a relationship or not, whether we're healthy or not, whether we're young or old, privileged or oppressed, happiness is possible with the development of understanding. It's nice to be young and beautiful and you know, not oppressed and all these things. But we don't have a lot of control over most of that. But we do have something to say about whether we cultivate understanding or we live a life of distraction. We need to leave it here. Sorry. Thanks for your comment, though. I'll just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Maybe pass the mic back to Jude in the corner while we just take a time for a couple breaths together. And appreciate being in the room. This community and this great lineage of folks before us, all the women and men, all the folks before us who did their practice, shared it as best they could. And one generation after another, it gets passed down. Just to be grateful for that wisdom stream that compassion stream. And now, like it or not, it's our turn to develop wisdom and compassion, to be causes for peace and freedom from suffering in our own heart and around us, in our worlds. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.